going through and discussing practical ways to better attune ourselves to the Holy Spirit. We've talked about slowing down, submersing ourselves in Scripture, inviting through surrender, asking God to help us bear fruit, knowing we can't do that on our own. And so today kind of marks our final in the series. We're going to be talking about obedience. And so next week, I won't be here. We're actually going to have a college student, uh, Carson Fraze. He's one of the leaders with the BSU. He's going to be preaching, so I helped him write his sermon this week. Um, so he's, he's going to do an awesome job. It's going to be an awesome week next week. And then after that, we'll be bouncing right back into this for the rest of the year. So it uh, should, should be a good time with all that. But we're going to wrap up today with this idea of obedience. I don't know if this is a universal experience or if this is one of the like growing up in the South things that just kind of happens. This is, this is pretty universal for me and all my friends that grew up in the South. You'll have to tell me if it's universal here or not. But everyone I know that grew up somewhere south of Kentucky, we all at least had one of those relatives, usually a grandma or like a great aunt or something like that, that they, were, they would tell you like they are pro-home remedies, which is great. What they really mean by that is like they are pro-conspiracy remedies. Do you guys know what I mean by that? So to this day, uh, you just, it's a rule in our house. We've got an unspoken rule. You do not cough in front of my grandmother. You don't cough. And it's not because she's a germaphobe. It's not because she's like scared you're going to make her sick. It's because in her mind, the reason you're coughing is because your lungs are too, like, I don't know, like crumbled up or something. And you've got to stretch those lungs out. And so if you start coughing, she will grab you by the wrist and like yank your arm out of socket. Like, you've got to stretch that lung out so they can, they can breathe and so it, you never do that thing where you're eating a meal and you swallow wrong and like all the tears start running to your face. And that's the point that like in my, if you're eating at grandma's house, you just, you run to the bathroom and cough in there because if you cough at the table, you're about to have your arm just like yanked. Like, you got to spread those lungs. You guys have family members that like this was the way they lived their life. There was some conspiracy remedy that they swore by and it didn't matter if something happened, they were like running to you to fix it. It's like, oh, hey, honey, is that a mosquito bite? I see you inching. Let's tape a potato skin to it. And you're like, why? It's just a mosquito bite. It's okay. And it's just before you know it, they are peeling a potato and they're taping it to your leg. And you guys have family members like this or someone that's like, uh, oh, your phone's not getting service. Did you know if you stick a spoon to the back of it, it'll operate like a satellite and then you'll get better service. And so here's, I carry my pocket spoon around with me so I get phone service. And he, do you guys know people like just conspiracy, conspiracy remedy people? I was thinking about that this week and I, I was thinking like, what is it that like makes me determine who I will believe and like listen to something like that and who I would write off as just like downright crazy? Because there, there are some people in this world that like told, if they told me, hey, Philip, did you know if you stuck a spoon to the back of your phone, it would operate like a satellite and you would get more service? I'd be like, sounds like it might be true. Sure, and there's some people that if they told me that, I'd be like, automatically, no, that's not right, and I don't. So what is it that determines whether or not we believe somebody? And I was thinking, I think it has to do something with, like, the relationship between you and that one person giving the outlandish remedy. So, like, if you, if you came running into my house one Friday, and you're like, hey, Philip, pack your bags, we're going on an overnight stay, let's go bring cotton balls. No. But if my wife runs into the house on Friday and she says, hey, pack your bags. Uh, we're going on an overnight trip. Let's go bring cotton balls. I'm loading up a suitcase of clothes and a suitcase of cotton balls because I don't know what she's got in store, but I know it's probably going to be fun. So, 
And so what's, what's the key difference, right? I have a relationship with her that says, I trust her. And if she's telling me to load up a bag of cotton balls, I'm going to do it. No questions asked because she's probably got a really good reason for it, even if I don't fully understand it, right? We make decisions, no matter how ridiculous the command is on whether or not we obey, based off of the relationship of the one that's telling us the command. And the same is true with our relationship with God. The problem with that is the relationships with with God and relationships that, that really drive us to obey, even in those outlandish situations, it, it demands this time and experience and, and investment into it to come out the other end and say, I don't know if I understand what's happening, but I agree and I will follow you. So what happens when it feels like the past experience doesn't match the present command? That's what I want to look at today in Joshua 1. So let's kick off Joshua 1, verse 1, and then we'll jump into chapter 3 here in a little bit. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you and all the people prepare to cross over the Jordan to the land I am giving the Israelites. I've given you every place where the sole of your foot treads, just as I promised Moses. Your territory will be from the wilderness to Lebanon, to the great river of the Euphrates River, to the land of the Hittites, and west to the Mediterranean Sea. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. I will be with you just as I was with Moses. I will not leave you or abandon you. So be strong and courageous, for you will, be, uh, you will distribute the land I swore to their fathers and give them as an inheritance. And above all, be strong and very courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you will have success wherever you go. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything written in it, for then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. Haven't I commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Am I saying, what does all of this have to do with obedience? And we'll see if I can connect, connect these pieces for it. But anytime you read, especially like an Old Testament story like this, you have to always understand that you are being inserted into an ongoing story. There's something that has happened before this, and there's something that will be happening after this. One of the problems of kind of the way, and I love that we do Sunday school and stuff like that, is that as a kid, you grow up, at least I did, hearing all these different stories of like one week would be how Jesus fed the 5,000, the next week would be the Jordan River crossing, the next week would be David and Goliath. And you just kind of get this concoction of a bunch of different biblical stories, and you miss how it all flows together. Because this whole book is one unified book from beginning to end. And so in order to really understand, I think, what's happening in Joshua, we need to backtrack all the way to Genesis and then catch ourselves back up. So we're going to do math time with Philip, Pastor Philip in a little bit. Right now it's history time with Pastor Philip. See, I themed it for the education system today. That's, you don't have to pay extra for that. So repeated uh, all throughout the Bible up until this point is this process, this pattern of God saving people through the separation of water or having them pass through water to life on the other side. So Genesis 1, right, the very beginning of creation, the Spirit of God settles upon the chaos waters and then calms it and begins to separate it out into dry land in order to make room for life. You see God controlling 
waters. Genesis 7, uh, the people become so corrupt at this point that God is going to allow those chaos waters to burst back up forth from the ground and to fall from the heavens, and he's going to flood the whole earth and wipe out mankind. And then he chooses one man in his family, and he calls him to build a boat. Right? This is the story of Noah and the ark. And he tells them to build this boat, where he, this boat where he lets them pass through the destruction waters safely to start a new life in a new world. Then in Exodus 14, it's perhaps the most impactful example of this, of the Israelites leaving slavery in Egypt. So for over 400 years, Israel has been enslaved by this giant empire of Egypt, and God has finally risen up, raised up, risen up a man named Moses that he's going to call them out of slavery into this new promised adventure as he establishes the Israelites as their own nation. So you get Moses, he comes into Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, you get the ten plagues. You guys have probably, many of you, heard this story. If not, go read Exodus. It's a really cool book at that part. So uh, they, they do the ten plagues. Finally, Pharaoh relents. He lets the people go. They march out of Egypt, and they get up to the coast of the Red Sea. And they're living in this newfound freedom. Things are finally good. They're singing songs. And it's like you can just envision the movie scene. I mean, they did make a movie about this. Um, DreamWorks made a movie about this. So you can envision the movie scene. They're setting up by the coast. The sun's rising early morning. Crickets chirping. It's beautiful. And all of a sudden, you hear the rumble of multiple horses riding in. And you see on the horizon, Pharaoh and his armies just descending down towards you. And this moment of panic strikes. Pharaoh's come back to take us where he wants us to be. He's coming back to re-enslave us once again. And as panic sets in, Exodus 14, 13 through 16 says this, But Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid, stand firm. Does that sound similar to Joshua 1? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's some ties in between these two passages. Don't be afraid, stand firm, and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You must be still. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it so that the Israelites can go through on dry ground. And you guys know the story. Moses walks out. He raises up his staff. The mighty east wind rushes in and it splits the Red Sea so that Israel marches through on dry ground. It's this monumental moment of Israelite identity. Like, this is the moment that their kids wouldn't play Power Rangers growing up. That's what I played growing up was Power Rangers. I don't know what you played. Their kids wouldn't play like Power Rangers growing up. Their kids would play Moses splitting the Red Seas growing up. This is the longest standing to this date holiday celebrated in human existence. This is the end part of what Israel, Jewish people, still celebrate at Passover. Right? This is the story. They're going to write songs about this. They're going to write poems. They're going to sing worship songs the, the Israelite church at this point, they weren't singing, you called me out upon the waters, like the ocean songs. They're singing, you called me out into the Red Sea. This, this is what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis because it was so monumentally impactful in their life. This is the moment God rescued us. So they, it sets in, it weighs on their minds as they continue on. But then within a few days, they're wandering around the other side of the Red Sea in the wilderness, and they start to complain again. 
And they come to the base of this mountain, Mount Sinai, and there God gives them the rules of the covenant, and he takes up residence within the tabernacle that he has them build, and he sends them off into the promised land. I'm going to get you guys to where I promised you I would take you. And as they're getting into the promised land, they send these 12 spies out, and the 12 spies go in, and they come back and they report, and 10 of them say, man, it's really great resources, everything's good, but there's nothing we can do to take on those people, which is just so human, right? to look at a situation and say, I know that God could conquer the Red Sea behind me. There's no way he can deal with the problem that's sitting in front of me. So God takes this and he says, if you guys really don't trust me, I'll tell you what, why don't you just go walk around the wilderness for another 40 years? So he banishes them. He says, this generation's not gonna see the promised land. You're gonna go spend 40 years in the wilderness and then we'll re-up this thing in a couple years. So then we fast forward to the book of Joshua. Forty years later, Moses, these people have all died and passed. A new generation is on the scene. And it's really easy to miss the context of what's happened here. But, but I think if we miss that context, we don't really understand what's happening in Joshua 1 and in Joshua 3. So, so go back with me. We're going to do this just a little bit longer and we'll keep going, okay? But I want you to try to put your shoes or your feet, into the shoes of, of one of these generations, one of these people within the Joshua generation. So you've heard the story of the Exodus, but you've lived your entire life in the wilderness. You've heard rumors of God's presence and his power, uh, but rumors, you've heard rumors of how he rescued your, your granddad from Egypt, and he split the Red Sea, but that's only really been bedtime stories with grandpa. You, you've sang the worship songs and you've read the poems, but you don't know the feeling of walking through two walls of water. You don't know the roller coaster of emotion going from panic to excitement of what God's doing and you have a front row ticket seat to it. You've celebrated the holiday and eaten the Passover meal, but no recollection of what it was really like that night that you left Egypt. Welcome to what many have called and what I'm going to call the wilderness generation. Israel in Joshua 1 is what's often referred to as a wilderness generation. It's this generation where rumors have exceeded reality. It's this generation where the stories surpass the experience. This generation where the past always seems greater than the present. The story of what God did seems better than what God does. I mean, I've heard the stories of how God split the Red Sea, but I mean, now we just get some food on the ground every morning. And that's ex extravagant, but that's not, that's not splitting the Red Sea. And so the stories you hear in this generation don't always match up with the reality in which you live. And if I could just kind of be honest with you in some ways, I identify with that generation. Because I've heard the stories of revival movements and, and the Jesus movement of the 70s. I've read our own church history minutes where uh, First Baptist itself baptized over 60 people on one Sunday, like 60 people. I'd be so tired after baptizing that many people. But I've not experienced that. I, I mean, I believe it's true. I believe it happened. I, I see fruit of it even now, but I didn't experience it. And so I'm left wondering, are the rumors of what God once did better than the reality of what God is doing now? Do the stories outweigh my experience? Does the past seem greater than the present? 
and what does God expect me to do with all of that? And so you get these movements in church life that's like, well, if only we could just get back to that day, we would just get back to where things were better again. If we could just like build a time machine, go back in time, everything would work out the way it was. We could finally have the experiences that the generations before me told me about, but I've never got to experience. But what does God expect? What did God expect the wilderness generation to do in Joshua? I think the answer quite simply is obey. But it's, it's more than just that. Because God, once again, is going to rescue his people through the passing of water, something he's done multiple times already in the Bible. He's tying it back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 7 and even more importantly, Exodus 14. But this time God's going to expect something a little different. Jump over to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua 3, I'm going to start in verse 7 and read through verse 17. By the way, there's some fun words in here. You can laugh at me if I pronounce them wrong. The Lord spoke to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so that they will know I will be with you just as I was with Moses. Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the water, stand in the Jordan. Then Joshua told the Israelites, come closer and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And he said, you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly dispossess before you the Canaanites, Hethites, Havites, Pezzarites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites when the ark of the covenant of the Lord of the whole earth goes ahead of you into the Jordan. Now choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. And when the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of the whole earth, come to rest in the Jordan's river, its water will be cut off. The water flowing downstream will stand up in a mass. When the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carried the ark of the covenant ahead of the people. Now the Jordan overflowed its banks through the har- uh, harvest season. So, but as soon as the priest carrying the ark reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water at its edge, and the water flowing downstream stood still, rising up in mass that extended as far as the Adam, a city in Zarethan. The water flowing downstream to the city of Arabah, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off, and the people crossed opposite of Jericho. The priest carrying the ark of the Lord's covenant stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all of Israel crossed on dry ground until the entire nation finished crossing the Jordan. So what I think the Bible's expecting us to do, in fact, if you go read chapter 2, chapter 2 tells us the story of Rahab and the spies, and Rahab's this pagan woman, but she's even heard the story of how God split the Red Sea. She brings it up in conversation with them. The text is trying to say, hey, you guys remember what happened back in Exodus 14? Why don't you go back and reread that and then read these and look at the two passages together. That's what we're going to do. We're not going to go back and read it. But I want to compare these two passages to you because I think it really matters. So Exodus 14, I have a slide for this, Kelsey. Exodus 14, uh, we find the story of one man's faithfulness connecting with God's provision and power to provide salvation to a people. Moses God says, stretch out your arms. Immediately when Moses does this, God sends a mighty rushing wind. It splits the water front and center stage to the whole nation. They they just watch as this happens. In Joshua 3, though, it's actually not Joshua's action that leads to this. It's the priest's action. And some would argue the 12 leaders that they also get in the water with the priests. And it's not front and center necessarily. They're told to wade into the water first. 
And God's going to do pretty much the exact same thing he did at the Red Sea, you know, stop water, cross on dry ground, all of that again. But, but this time, God has attached to this story some expectations of his people, the need of commands and obedience. He's included an invitation to participate with him, an invitation into obedience, an invitation to play a part in the story. I heard a pastor say it like this, so I'm just going to steal it from him. While Exodus 14 was an intrusion, Joshua 3 is an invitation. So ex- Exodus 14 is it's, it's an intrusion. It's God just entering into time and doing something significant to change the trajectory of the world, of a life, of nations. This happens somewhat often in the Bible. There are times where God comes in, he makes a decision, and he just changes the trajectory of a life or of a nation or of the world. Mary's womb. Mary, the Holy Spirit's going to conceive, and you're going to give birth to a son. Uh, Paul's journey to Damascus when Jesus just shines down from heaven and strikes him blind. It's, It's intrusions. It's times where there is little to no human participation in what God is doing. He does not ask permission. He does not ask for an opinion. He does not extend an invitation. He just acts. Exodus 14, for almost all of Israel outside of Moses, is an intrusion where God steps into time and through the faithfulness of one man demonstrates his omnipotence as he splits a sea in half. But God's moved his people up and to the right since then, and he's developed his intrusion to an invitation. And in fact, if you take these two things and look through Scripture, you'll find far more examples of God working through invitation than you do God working through intrusion. In fact, this is almost exclusively how Jesus works, that Jesus is always going to do this opportunity for invitation. He's going to say things like, hey, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross. It's if you want to follow me. There's an invitation there. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. There's an invitation. The classic, follow me. It's an invitation. Hey, hey, Peter, you could stay in that fishing boat and fish if you wanted, but I'd invite you to follow me. That Jesus lives this life of inviting people in to participate in the story that he is living out. And this, in Joshua 3, is God's invitation to a generation of people who have personally never experienced the power of God but have heard the stories. And now God's saying, I'm going to invite you to experience this power for yourself. I'm going to invite you to see just what I can do. And so he starts out with the invitation in chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua. And he said, Moses, my servant is dead. Now you and all the people prepare to cross. Verse 2. That's an invitation. Get ready. Prepare to cross. There was no get ready in Exodus 14. There was no, hey guys, I need you to wake up and be really serious this morning because I'm going to do something, but I, I need you to prepare yourselves for it. There was just God's action. But here in Joshua 1, there's this get ready. This prepare yourselves. So what does it look like to prepare? What's the preparation stage? Well, verse 8. The book of instruction must, depart, must not depart from your mouth. You're to meditate on it day and night. So, so two things. Meditate on this word day and night. You prepare to participate by meditating. So understand, jo- uh, understand Joshua. Understand this story that I'm unfolding. Look at what I did at creation. Look at how I rescued Noah. Remember how I saved Israel through the Red Sea. Memorize the commands of the covenant and live them out because there's going to be competing ideologies out there. 
There's going to be things that seek to distract you from this. But the more you know my law, the deeper you get into it, the deeper it gets into you, and the more likely you are to participate in this invitation. The more likely you are to participate with me, Joshua, make my story of what I've done so prevalent in your life now, it becomes your story of what I'm doing. This is the command to meditate. And keep it on your lips. Talk about it. Tell other people about it. Have them tell you about it. Repeat it. Tell the stories. I'm going to break a little bit. Let me just do some application here. What do you talk about at the dinner table every night? What are the things you discuss when you leave here and you go to Cattle Baron for lunch? And I'm not telling you every single conversation needs to be about Jesus and Jesus alone. If you talk about football one time, you're wasting your time because I talk about football. I mean, come on. It's fun. But what I'm saying is, is if the premise of God and the gospel, the story of how God saves humanity, never once crosses your conversations on a day-to-day basis, the likeliness is you don't live according to it the way you think you do. Because when it consumes you and when you talk about it, it just becomes the normal conversation point. So talk about it. This is this command to Joshua. Hey, meditate on this story and talk about this story. And then the invitation to Joshua begins with a stage of preparation. Meditate, speak, and then get ready to make it your story. And then right in chapter 3, verse 6, he gives the command. He then said to the priest, carry the Ark of the Covenant and go ahead of the people. So they carried the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of them. And then he's going to tell them, and wade into the water. You've probably had this pointed out to you before. But no longer is it just stand on the edge and outstretch your arms, but it's go get your feet wet a little bit. Get into that water and watch what I will do from this. Wade in. So now God's extending the invitation to other leadership as well as Joshua. That there's going to be more people involved in this story. Uh, No longer is it Moses and a staff. It's a priesthood and a nation. No longer is it one man and his convictions. It's a group of people with their shared convictions. God's going to do the same thing he did 40 years ago at the Red Sea. But this time, there's an invitation to obedience. An invitation to partake in what God is doing. And what's the result? Verse, chapter 3, verse 15. Now the Jordan overflows its bank throughout the harvest, but as soon as, or immediately as the priests were carrying the ark, reached the Jordan, as soon as their feet touched the water at its edge, the water flowing downstream stood still. The second they take action, the second they obey, God stops the water. And I need to have a little bit more of a discussion with you, and then we'll apply all this. So there's two kind of schools of thought of what happens at this moment. And it depends on how you translate the Hebrew. Hebrew is notoriously difficult to translate. And so there's two different ways. The CSB translates it kind of like this. I have a picture, Kelsey, if we can show this, this picture up here. Thing. Yeah, so this is kind of how the, the Christian Standard Bible uh, translates it. It's this idea that God kind of puts his hand at the point where they step into the water. And he just kind of like dams up the water right there. And so the water's trickling down, but it's just building And that by the point they cross through the waters, that it's already piled all the way back up and created this like lake all the way up to the city of Adam. That's one way of reading this. I don't think that's probably the accurate way of reading it, however. Um, I I think it's the alternative way. So the ESV translates verse 16 this way. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam. So go to the next picture, Kelsey. 
So it's this idea that they cross down there near where Gilgal is, but the water actually stops all the way up at Adam. The second they step into the water, God stops it, but it stopped all the way up at the city of Adam. And so uh, the Faith Life Study Bible says this. It says, the wording suggests that the waters were stopped up at Adam, not the place where the priests entered. So, so there's some debate on it. I'm going to go with this one as my take, that the waters were stopped all the way up at Adam. Number one, because I think it's more accurate to the traditional Hebrew. Number two, because I think it matches what God is doing of performing a similar miracle but with a different execution. So let's just say, let's just say, that the second the priests step into the water, God blesses their obedience and he makes his move and he stops the water from flowing up at Adam. I'm going to do some math time with Pastor Philip now. You ready? So Adam is about 17 miles north of, of where they're crossing. Uh, I Googled it because Google gives you all the information you could ever want. Did you know the average river flows at about three miles an hour? That's a steady flowing river, three, three miles an hour. You can Google that and look it up. So if God stops the water 17 miles up north, and the average river flows at three miles an hour, how long are they standing in that water? Almost six hours. If this is the way that happened, they are out there standing with the Ark of the Covenant, waited in the water for up to six hours. Now, did God act the second they obeyed? Absolutely, he did. If this is the way it happened, did they notice it? I have to wonder, what would that have been like? What would it have felt like to, to wade into the water because your leader told you to, and all of a sudden you're in there for 10, 15 minutes, and you're like, Wait, is this, this doesn't feel right to me, Joshua. I, I mean, think of all the excuses you could come up with in five hours of waiting. Right? Joshua, you're, you're pretty new to this, right? Uh, could you have missed something? Is there something you forgot? Joshua, I, I know I wasn't there at the Red Sea, but my grandpa told me stories that, like, God just did it instantly. Joshua, isn't there supposed to be, like, a mighty rushing wind or something like, like that? Joshua, I'm tired, and my feet have gone numb, and you just become like a child in a car seat in a car ride. Like, how long until we get there? See, when God invites us into obedience, he also invites us into his timing. And he gives conditions on that. So here's, here's my whole point in all of this to make reference to it. Joining in with God demands obedience to God. If we want to do whatever it is that God's doing in this town and in this nation and in this world, it starts with us obeying him. Joining in with God will demand obedience to God. So we can get ready all, all we want, Joshua 1. We can meditate and talk about it. We can invite and ask the Spirit. But there comes a point where God directly extends his invitation to obedience, the invitation to, hey, it's time to wade into the water. And we think, God, God, I've done that before. And it didn't look like anything happened. I, I don't understand. I, I thought you were supposed to split the waters with a rushing wind. And God says, no, no, no. My invitation to you is to take a couple steps into the stream and trust me. My invitation to you is to obey. And sometimes, sometimes obedience demands foolishness. In fact, I found more often than not, spiritual leadership is the ability to risk looking foolish in public. That's just, that's just what it is. 
to stand in water for five hours while the rest of the nation stares at you and wonders if you've gone mad? I mean, if you, if you want a picture of godly leadership, if you want to participate in godly leadership, then what God's inviting you to is to go first. Hey, it sounds crazy, but take a couple steps into the stream. To believe that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do so that you wade out far enough to where either God's going to come through or you're going to look ridiculous. And honestly, it might just be a combination of both. The obedience of Moses led to the Red Sea parting instantly. And the obedience of Joshua and, and the Israelite leadership led to the Jordan River stopping instantly. But it took six hours for him to notice. Sometimes obedience demands foolishness, and sometimes obedience demands waiting. And here, here's the thing, just personally. Waiting, I can, or foolishness, I can stomach foolishness. I, I'm, I'm okay looking kind of silly. If people make fun of my faith, like, whatever, it's all right. I, I'm confident enough in it that I don't need approval of others. But waiting? Waiting is like the sandpaper to inspiration. It just grinds it down until it feels like there's nothing left. How many hours before the excitement to participate with what God is doing fades into these knots of anxiety and doubt? Joshua, how long are we going to stand here? Joshua, are you really sure this is what God said? But they stay put not because of the emotion that holds them there or the inspiration that holds them there, but because it's an invitation that holds them there. That they believe the God of the universe said, I want you to do this, and I need you to trust me with what I've told you to do. This is why, just as an aside, personally, I don't often do the little like emotional invitation times where let's turn on the lights and play some soft music and every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm not opposed to that. But I know that if you make a decision to follow God out of emotion, usually God's going to still require some waiting that comes with that. And if you're not careful, that inspiration and that emotion will just wind and grind away, and you'll be left wondering if God even did anything. No, what you need is not emotion and inspiration. You need to trust God's invitation. Because sometimes obedience demands foolishness, and sometimes obedience demands waiting, but every single time obedience demands faith. Every single time, obedience demands faith. Faith that risks that foolishness. Faith that waits patient on some incredibly uncomfortable situation. Faith that says, God, you've told me something awaits on the other side of this river, so I'm obeying you because you're the only one that can get me there. And eventually what happens? That six hours later, the water trickles away, and they're left to walk across on dry ground. We spent over three months now, three months, talking about the Holy Spirit, better attuning ourselves to God. We've talked about the little things we can do to help, slow down, pay attention, find quiet and rest, read our Bibles, invite God through surrender moment by moment, asking him to take control of our lives to bear fruit. And I think, if I could just be honest, I think the problem that most of us face in this, it's really not the inviting and the asking. It's, it's really not the slowing down, like, yeah, we maybe struggle with that and need to do some things. But I think the problem we really have is it's the obeying. Because I would argue that I think almost all of you, if not many of you, you know exactly what God's calling and asking of you. 
Because every single time this last three months that you've went to invite the Spirit in, every single time you've wanted to surrender, every single time you've went to God and said, God, I really want to bear fruit. Help me to bear fruit. Every time you slow down and quiet yourself, you're just drawn straight back to that same thought over and over and over again. And it's starting to infuriate you. And maybe it's some sin. It's something that's preventing, a, it's a blockade standing between you and God. Because you're just like, God, I want you to use me. I want your will to my life. And God's like, all right, I need you to stop looking at that thing you look at every night. Like, no, not that one. Can we just move on past that? God, I want you to use me. I want to I live a life for your glory and greatness. And God's like, yeah, but I'm going to need you to stop sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend. God, I'm ready. I want to see crazy, amazing things happen in this church. Yeah, but I'm going to need you to stop being greedy and angry all the time. You're going to have to be generous. And God just keeps drawing you back to that same thing. What you need is not more time to invite and ask. What you need is to obey. That's what he's calling you to. And you're saying, but that sounds so foolish, Philip. That's not what the world would do at all. Great. Welcome to following God. But Philip, I tried that, and I waited for so long, and nothing happened. And God keeps calling you back to it. It sounds to me like he still needs you to go back to it. Or maybe he's calling you to a sin, or, or maybe he's calling you to some specific calling. I need you to go talk to that person. I need you to quit that job. I need you to look for this job. I need you to go to this place. I need you to knock on that person's door. I need you. There's just some weird specific thing that, that God keeps drawing you back to. And every time you're like, that's silly. There's no way that's God. And yet now for three months, he's drawing you right back to the exact same thought. And what he's asking is for your obedience. As foolish as you may look, as long as you may have to wait, the faith that would come in and say, God, I don't know why, but I'm trusting you with this to join right back into your story. Do you understand that's what the gospel's all about? We don't obey God so that he might love us more and give us good things. That, that's never the sake of obedience. We can never obey God enough to get his attention. He's perfect, we're broken, it doesn't work that way. No, we obey God once we understand how he's redeemed us. So by the way, if you don't understand how God's redeemed you, he sent his one and only son to come and die on a cross that you might be forgiven and set free of your sins by just proclaiming your faith in Jesus and laying your life down. It's available for anyone that wants that. And then once you believe that, you obey not to get God's attention or his blessing, but you obey to join into the story of what he's doing. You guys know that God has a story of how he wants to redeem Portales, New Mexico? That there are people out there that he wants to reach, and he wants you to be part of that story. But if you're going to be part of that story, it demands you wait a few steps into the water. God, I don't know why, but I'm taking a couple steps into this. Because here's the thing. I think so often we wish that God would just come back and, and fix things through intrusion. Like God would just intrude, like next Sunday morning, there would just be this mob of unsaved people here that we wouldn't even have space for. And they'd be like, hey, how can we be saved? I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Thanks, God, for the intrusion. Bring more of that. And instead, what God is saying is he's saying, no, I'm inviting you. You're going to be a part of this story. You're going to make a difference in this world, not through your own power, but through your obedience to what I am doing. So wade into the water. So maybe it's time we wade into the water. Maybe you're a leader in this church and there's something God's telling you of, of you need to wade in. And it's time for you to do that. Maybe you've just been coming and attending pretty often, but God's got that one thing and you're like, I can't escape this. And just for the next few moments, you need to surrender that in obedience to God. We're going to have a time of just prayer and reflection. I'll be up here if you want to pray with me. But I would just remind you that what God did at the Red Sea 
he did again at the Jordan with a totally new generation that hadn't experienced anything. But it came about at the Jordan because they were invited to participate. And they risked foolishness and waiting through faith. And God did something incredible. If we want to see what God can do in this town, it's likely not going to be through one person. It will not be through me, I promise. But it will be through this church, through you, obeying God, risking foolishness and waiting, because he's wanting to do something. So what do you need to do? Father God, thank you for today. I pray that you would just show us very clearly what it means to obey you. And God, if we're stuck in this trap of, God, we invite you in and we're asking you to participate and you keep calling us to the same thing, God, give us the heart to today come in obedience and lay it aside or pick it up or whatever it is you're commanding us to do. Not for the sake of earning our salvation, we could never earn that. But for the sake of joining in with what you're doing in the world around us, God, may we be a church that when people look at us, they say, First Baptist, that's a church that obeys God. Thank you for that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.